Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook, thedjburr on Instagram, and at djburr1022 on Twitter. Good morning and welcome to Making an Addict. I'm DJ and today I am speaking with Stephen C., Stephen is a man in long-term recovery and an author. Stephen is the author of It's a Selfish Program, Experience, Strength, and Hope for Recovering Addicts, as well as his new book, Amends, Apologies, and the Myths of Forgiveness, A Guide to the Eighth and Ninth Steps. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, DJ. It's good to be here. Yeah, awesome. All right, Stephen. So I'm talking with folks in recovery about what makes someone an addict. Mm. Can you tell us about you and your experience with addiction, how long you've been in recovery, and so on. Sure, sure. Um, so the, the how I got here uh, was initially uh, my my, uh, my earliest addictive experiences were around drugs and alcohol, and uh, um, I would say that I was in active uh, drug and alcohol addiction for about twenty years or so, from age seventeen into my late into my late thirties. I think is when it. Uh, uh, when I finally came to and, uh, uh, and, and began my recovery process. Um, so, uh, um, so just to talk about kind of what, what made me an addict, um, I, I think in my case there are a couple of factors that played into it. Uh, and I think the primary one was being raised in a household uh, of emotionally illiterate parents. Um, I, I love my parents. Uh, whatever bad feelings I have about the way that I was raised, I have long since let go of, and, and uh, uh, it's not even forgiven them. I've simply recognized that they were doing the best that they could with the tools that they were given. Uh, and, uh, um, and, you know, at some point, whatever wounds were visited us upon us as children become our responsibility to take care of. You know, it's not... Uh, the, it's not my parents' fault that I became an addict or that I stayed an addict for as long as I did. Uh, but being raised in a household where uh, certain feelings were not welcome, uh, certain parts of me were not welcome, uh, I, I learned to, to hide those parts, to act them out in different ways, uh, to let those emotions come out in sideways fashions. And, and eventually, as the buildup of, of that accumulated uh, pain and suppression and inauthenticity, uh, got to a certain point, it created a level of pain that I had to medicate, you know, in order to, because I couldn't express it in a healthy fashion. I didn't know how. I was never shown how to do that. Uh, so I simply began to medicate them, you know, just to numb them, to make them, you know, go away. That's I'm making air quotes here for all you folks out there in Radio Land, because they don't really go away, but it feels like they do. Um, so uh, drugs and alcohol were, for a period of time, a successful strategy for, for, uh, for, for doing that. Um, and, uh, the, uh, the problem arises, I mean, there are a number of problems with it. First of all, it's not a real solution. It's a fake solution. Um, but, but the, the deeper problem for those of us who, who become addicts is we become habituated to the behavior, you know, that there are, uh, uh, I think in drugs and alcohol, there are chemical components to the substances that we're ingesting that, that build up this, uh, uh, this craving in our bodies for, for more of that. And I, so I think it, it becomes a combined uh, emotional and physiological dependency, a craving for, for this particular kind of relief and this particular kind of medication. Um, and it gets to a point, uh, in my case, I would say I hit that point 
probably in my mid to late 20s, I think, uh, if I'm being honest. Uh, my mid to late 20s where I really no longer had any control over the level of, of substances that, that I was ingesting. Um, and, uh, and that to me is sort of the point of powerlessness, the, the point where uh, I, I simply am not at choice anymore. Uh, it may seem like I am, but in fact, if, if you look at my behavior, I am returning again and again and again and again to, that, to the behavior, to the self-destructive behavior, and I'm doing it more and more and more. Uh, and that, that to me is the, the inevitable path of addiction uh, and certainly was the case for me. Uh, and, uh, so that, I think that that's, that's sort of the short version of the, uh, of the, the making of an addict. Um, and then for me, uh, I, I came to, in terms of my substance abuse in my late thirties, I think I was probably 30, 39 or thereabouts when I, when I went to my first AA meeting, but I got sober from drugs and alcohol quickly. I mean, in the sense that I quit using and I never turned. I never turned back. I never relapsed. Uh, I, I simply kept going to meetings, kept working the program, and I stayed clean and sober um, for a long time. I mean, from then until today. So, uh, so you know, tw- about twenty six and a half years now. Thanks, thanks to God. Um, and uh, but what I what I also did in the in the course of that process was after about four years, I graduated myself more air quotes, radio people, I graduated myself from AA. I decided I've got it figured out. I think this sobriety thing is really not all that hard. Uh, I think I can take it from here. Uh, And I quit going to meetings after about four years. I quit going to meetings. And I stayed uh, stayed clean and sober from drugs and alcohol. Um, But what I didn't do was I didn't keep myself in a community uh, and in an environment where rigorous honesty was supported and, and, and in fact required. And I didn't keep the fact of my addictive nature in front of me. Because I, I, I really don't believe that any of us are addicted to a single thing. I think we're addicted to medicating our pain. Uh, and we will find any way that we can do that that presents itself. Um, a buddy of mine talks about the whack-a-mole principle of, of, of recovery from addiction where, you know, you, the, the pops up, you know, alcoholism pops up, we whack it on the head and it goes down and boom, up comes drug addiction. We whack that on the head, boom, up comes gambling or work or sex or, you know, whatever. Um, there's always something. Oh yeah, <laughs> there really are. There are just no end of things that we can, that we can become addicted to if we don't pay attention. You know, if we don't keep ourselves in the habit of recovery, keep ourselves in the habit of rigorous honesty and working the steps and staying in, staying connected to a higher power and, you know, doing service and all the things that we do that, that keep us sober. Well, I didn't do any of those things uh, after after those four years. I, I believe that I have always been a, a sex and love addict, you know, as long as, as long as I've had a sexual nature, which, you know, I think arises, you know, some at some point in childhood. Um, but I think even before that, I was a love addict. I think pr- from a very early age, uh, I, I developed love addictive uh, qualities. And uh, my substance abuse just masked them. You so know. what are the qualities of a love addiction? Oh, man, I would say for me it, is, uh, it, 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 it was uh, using love as a drug, using, the, using the, 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 uh, the relationship and the interactions, the dynamics, the sort of the, the pursuit, the conquest, the, you know, the, the, the validation that can come from having somebody respond to, to your overtures and to your attraction to them, uh, using all of those as a drug. Um, in, in a way, I think love addiction is a misnomer because what it is that we're addicted to is not really love. You know, it's, it's, it, it looks like love and we call it love, but that's not what it is. You know, it is, it's, a, it's just a series of behaviors that numb our pain, you know, and a true love is not intended to do that and doesn't function in that fashion, I don't believe. Um, but nevertheless, we, you know, we, when we're in the behavior, we call it love and it, you know, looks to the outside world often like, you know, we're in loving relationships, etc. So we call it love addiction. So, so for me, it's, it's using, it's using that, using that format, using that relationship to, to escape reality, you know, to escape our pain, to escape our low self-esteem, uh, you know, any, any number of things that, that don't really have to do, to do with love. And then sex addiction, the same thing. That's really even easier, I think, to conceive of that just using that heedless pursuit of pleasure and, uh, uh, um, the sort of endorphins and dopamine that get poured into our system when we're sexually active and so forth, using those as drugs, using them just the way that I use cocaine or just the way that I use alcohol. 
So that for me is 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 love and sex addiction. And like I say, I, I think I think I was always uh, I had that tendency and had those had those those behaviors in uh, in in my system. But for the twenty plus years that I was an active drunk and an active drug addict, those behaviors took took primacy. They were they were my priority. They were my 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 drugs of choice, and they they really kind of uh, um, they sidelined uh, romantic and sexual relationships because. Romantic and sexual relationships will almost always um, uh, take a back seat to drug and alcohol addiction. You know, we were, I, it certainly was true for me, and I've seen it in many other people. I just I preferred my dr- my drugs and my alcohol to relationships, and therefore I couldn't sustain a long term relationship. I you know I acted for a long time like I didn't really need one, uh, but when I sobered up and I no longer had those you know those avenues of of release of escape of medication. You know, I the, I sought other ones, uh, and and for me, sex and love addiction just came up, you know, really very very quickly. And because I was out of recovery, and uh, because I was out of a com- out of touch with a community that would have helped me keep that in front of me, I didn't even recognize it. You know, I didn't realize until it was too late. You know, that I was simply falling prey to another addiction. So. I'm curious if the fact that you identify as a, as a sex and love addict, and I want to focus primarily on the love part, if it's somehow related to maybe not getting the love that you needed, did that cause the pain? Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Uh, you know, part, I, I think hand in, hand in hand with emotional illiteracy uh, comes an inability you know, I don't know. I, as I say this, I'm not sure that the two are inextricably connected. They certainly were were in my parents, uh, and and I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it or seen any studies about it, so I, I don't know they're necessarily connected. But in my family, uh, alongside the emotional illiteracy, alongside the inability to healthily express all the whole range of emotions, uh, was a uh, was a kind of conditional love. And actually, as I, as I'm thinking about it, they are connected because. Uh, because the message I got from my parents was that we will give you love, we will give you approval when you behave this way, you know, when you behave in a certain fashion, uh, and which did not include, you know, getting angry, uh, you know, b- being sad for any long period of time, uh, being scared, uh, you know, for again, for an extended period of time, it, just any way that made them uncomfortable, you know, and, 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 and so their, their love was was perceived by me and I think was in reality was conditional um, and again they were doing the best they could it wasn't they weren't trying to hurt me or 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 withhold from me something that I wanted they just couldn't they couldn't it was the only way they knew how to give it so so the short answer to your question is yes uh, I did not receive love in a in an unconditional fully nurturing fully supporting fashion and as a result of that uh, I my model for love, what I went out and looked in the world for, was that same kind of love, you know. And I and 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 I fashioned myself in any way that I thought I needed to in order to get somebody to love me in that way, in the way that I was used to. And it wasn't really me, and it wasn't really love, you know. So it was a formula for disaster. I think a lot of people uh, hurt because they don't receive the love that they need. And you're right. Our parents can only give us what maybe they've received, right? I think. And they don't always get the right message. And so I think, you know, not receiving that love and affection and attention is directly connected to, you know, someone potentially becoming an addict because we're pursuing, right? It's the pursuit of, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's yeah. the, the drugs or alcohol or the love or the sex, we're really just trying to deal with the, the pain. Right, right. We're trying to medicate the pain and we are, we're pursuing something that is illusory. You know, we're pursuing something that doesn't really exist and isn't good for us. Um, and, and yeah, until, until, we, until we reframe that whole idea, the idea of who we are and the idea of what love really is and what we're, what we're really needing and looking for, we're going to continue to chase that, chase that thing down the rabbit hole and it's not going to be good. When did you become aware that you were chasing Wow. Let's see. Um, I would say, in 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 terms of my love addiction, um, it finally dawned on me. I had been sober. I would say about five, four or five years, maybe. And I had been in a few relationships in sobriety. 
uh, none of which had worked out. Uh, and uh, and I and and I looked back over the entire course of my of my relationship history and realized, wow, this is just what's happening to me now in sobriety is not a whole lot different than what was happening to me, you know, b- before I became an addict and while I was an addict. And wow, I wonder if it's not just bad luck. I wonder if I might have something to do with this. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, this is the beginning of wisdom, you know. Wow, I wonder if this is something I'm doing. Uh, and that was the, when I first got into therapy. Was at that point uh, where I realized. So, and I don't know that at that time I would have called it chasing something, but 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 I would have called. But I certainly would have and did identify it as something. There's something I'm doing that's not working, and I'm doing it over and over and over again. Uh, and uh, I and I need help to break this pattern. So, so even prior to getting into recovery from, from second love addiction, uh, I had recognized that, that pattern and the sort of fruitlessness of it and did what I could to, to, to try to arrest the pattern. Uh, it, as it turned out, it wasn't enough, uh, but uh, it you know, got me pointed in the right direction. Anyway. And you know, it's important that we address these issues when they come up. We, you know, when you talked about drugs and alcohol, we don't need those things. Right, those things are optional. Right, right. We don't need them. Right, uh, love and sex—that's hardwired. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. So, in their in your therapy process, what did you learn about love and sex? You know, man. Uh, unfortunately, in my therapy process, not a whole lot. Uh, That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. And again, you know, my my therapist was doing the best that she could with what she had. Uh, you know, I, I have. I certainly have uh, some judgments about. The, you know, the the. The, the sort of the blind spots that she brought into the relationship, you know, which, you know, therapists are just people. Perfectly they, imperfect. Yeah, they've got their own, they got their own stuff. Uh, and some of her stuff, I think, must have been around, around sex and sex addiction because I, I was pretty candid about my, about my habits, which at that point included, included uh, uh, what I would call chronic masturbation, which included a, 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 an excessive uh, fascination and involvement with porn, uh, and uh, I, I wasn't willing at that point, and I, I, could, I didn't see it as an addiction as such, but I knew, you know, I think this probably isn't normal. Well, she, she didn't see it that way, uh, and she tried to normalize that behavior for me, uh, which she may have thought she was doing me help, because her focus, her, I think what she saw as my main problem was self-esteem, which was not untrue. I mean, I didn't have a good, I did not have a good self-image, and I don't think I had really yet learned how to love myself and how to care for myself. So she wasn't wrong about that, but she, it's kind of, she almost lumped everything into that category and saw her job as making me feel good about whatever I was doing, uh, which for an addict is not, is not a, is not a workable strategy. Not helpful. You know, yeah, no, we need to be clear about the unhelpful nature of some of the things we're doing. Yes. And unfortunately she, she wasn't able to, to, to help me see that, uh, so she did. Uh, what I got from her was uh, was a, a sense of validation that I certainly was needing, uh, but probably not uh, unaccompanied by some by some critical objective assessments of my behavior, which I was also needing. So, what was happening in your life? Uh, so, I hear that you weren't successful in maintaining relationships. Is that the same for uh, family relationships and friendships? Where was was everything kind of off? Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I I would say so. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that I that none of the, that that almost none of the people who are friends in, in my life at that point are now are friends in my life now tells me that yeah, there was something certainly off about my relationships. I had friendships, and I think in in many ways I was a good friend. I am a good friend. You know, I, I had those qualities even back then. Uh, you know, friendships are by and large less demanding than than intimate, you know, uh, your primary intimate relationships. So I was, you know, I was capable of showing up for the for the less demanding uh, uh, friendships relationships. I was still presenting a front and still presenting only part of who I was because I all the, the stuff that I felt shameful or broken about was not I was I don't think I brought into any of my friendships as a you know that I, that I shared them with people so you know it wasn't really me that was there uh, but to the extent that 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 I showed up I, I was a good friend uh, and I had many I had many friends my relationships with my family had improved you know so getting into sobriety certainly improved my relationships with my family um, but uh, there was more healing left to do, uh, and I and I hadn't uh, because 
Um, because I was unaware, I think, I really, I, was, I wasn't fully aware of the, the depth of wounding and the nature of the wounding that I'd received, you know, in my, in my family of origin. I couldn't really, you know, I, not knowing what I needed to let go, I couldn't let it go. So it was still influencing, influencing the relationships. They, they, they had become cordial, you know, they had become, we had certainly lost the kind of combative and... Uh, 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 antagonistic aspect of the of the relationship, and I'm speaking primarily about my mom and dad here. My sister, my brother, and I have always gotten along, uh, so yeah, there good. wasn't you know there was there was some healing to do there, but but not not at the level that I needed to do with my with my mom and dad. So so the, the relationship had improved, you know, it was uh, it, it was it was cordial, it was it was uh, by and large devoid of antagonism and and a lot of other things that 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 had marked it before. But there was more. There was more. There was more growing to do, and 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 uh, uh, it would take me getting into recovery for sex and love addiction to really get to the root of what I needed to do to fix those relationships. Okay. So, and so, would you say that you have fixed those relationships? Yes. I yeah. I have. I have. And part of which is part of, of the fixing of that relationship is letting go of the things that can't be fixed. You know. Right. Uh, so so I am. Uh, the, I I believe I have done everything that I can do in order to to create the bridge and to express the love. That I have, uh, I have for my family, and I have let go of the things that are out of my control and that I that I can't do, uh, and and uh, uh, and I, I love my family right where they are, you know, right right just for who they are and right where they are, and I don't ask anything more of them than than they can get. And so I know you as a man in recovery who talks a lot about codependency, and I appreciate that because mm. we don't talk enough about codependence. So yeah. can you say what your thoughts and feelings are about mm. why codependence work is so important to us suffering addicts? It, I can't remember when, but it was sometime in when I, when I was, when I got into sex and love, uh, recovery from sex and love addiction, I think two or three years into sex and love addiction, I became more aware of, of the nature of codependency and how codependency plays out uh, in, in the lives of addicts. And I came to believe, and I, I believed firmly to this day, that codependency is at the root of all addiction. That 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 once you once we have done the work of recovering from the from the in our face day to day, this is how I live patterns of our addiction. However, it is manifesting ourselves. Our next frontier and the and the frontier that we have to cross in order to fully recover in our addiction is codependency. I think codependency is at the heart of all addiction. I think every addict needs to do that work. In order to completely and fully heal uh, from the from the ravages of of, of, of our behavior, and it's, this is how I see it working. So my definition of codependency is: I'm not okay unless you're okay. And the corollary to that is: I'm not okay with me unless you're okay with me. And that is if just hearkening back to 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 the the model of love that I learned in my family. You know that was how I learned to. That was how I learned to uh, uh, moderate my behavior uh, in order to get the love that my parents were were able to give. You know, I had to behave in a way that made them okay with me in order to receive their approval, and that became my model for love, and that became my model really for my self image and for how I walked walked in the world. Um, and the truth of that is, it is completely unworkable. It is an unworkable and unsustainable way to live, because. People are people, and people will never reliably give you what you need. You know, not out of malice, and not not because they don't wish you well, just because they're not. We're not capable of it. We are imperfect beings. We have our character defects. We have our blind spots, and 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 so to make my well-being and my my sense of self dependent on whether you think I'm okay or not, and whether you're willing to give me messages of validation or not, is to mean that I will never be well. I will never be completely comfortable in my own skin. I will never be completely assured that I'm lovable and worthy uh, because we can't get those messages consistently. It just That's not the way the world works. So what that sets up is this unending vicious circle of pain, you know, where I, where I keep trying to conform my behavior, behaving in inauthentic ways in order to get something from you that you may or may not give me. I'm definitely not going to receive it all the time. When I don't receive it, I'm going to feel pain. I think there's something wrong with me. I'm going to try harder to do, you know, to behave in a certain way. And on and on it goes. And the pain builds and builds and builds. And we have to do something to medicate it. You know, we, we just, again, because we are pain-avoiding, pleasure-seeking creatures, you know, we will find some way to, to make that pain go away. 
And, and uh, again, it can express itself in any of the myriad ways that addiction does. You know, we, we'll work harder, we'll have more sex, we'll drink more, we'll gamble, you know, we'll, we'll shop, you know, what, you name it. Eat more. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they don't call it comfort food for nothing. Right, that's true. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so, uh, so, that's so, and then wham, you're off on the, you're on the addictive merry-go-round and, and, you know, you get what you get. But at the root of it, is this codependent belief that that I'm not okay unless you're okay, and I'm not okay with me unless you're okay with me. So at the end of the day, that is the that's the that's the crux of the of the broken thinking that we need to address if we're gonna heal from addiction. Absolutely, I agree hundred percent. So what happened for you when you started to say, I'm okay with me, regardless if you're okay with me. What changed? Um, you know, what changed was I, I lost some friendships, you know. Uh, I lost some relationships because uh, what happens is we create codependent contracts with people, you know, unspoken codependent contracts with people that, you know, I will treat you this way. I will feed your codependency if you will feed my codependency. Right. And, and when, when, when one side of that equation decides they're not going to play anymore, the other side gets very uncomfortable. You know, it's 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 a challenge to uh, to a worldview that, you know, kind of props up people's view of whether they're all right or not. You changed the contract. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I rewrote the terms of the contract and and, you know, there were people in my life who just who couldn't live with that. So I so that that happened. Um, I became, um, you know, for a while I became more anxious and more nervous because it, it's a it, as a. You know, as a recovering codependent, it's not an easy way to live, you know, to, 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 to sort of rewrite my own contract myself and say, you know, I'm not going to source my sense of self-worth from how people respond to me. I'm simply, I'm going to check in with God, uh, you know, and check in with my heart and I'm going to, I'm going to behave according to that. And however people react is up to, is their stuff, not my stuff. And that's not easy to do. I mean, much like, much like some of the, the withdrawal period in, in any addictive recovery process, there is a period where it doesn't feel very good. You know, it's not, I've cut myself off from my, from my habitual sources of comfort and, uh, and it's not comfortable. Uh, but over time, what I found was a greater sense of comfort, a greater sense of ease with myself, a greater sense of ease with the world. You know, it's a lot easier to feel that all is right with the world if I'm sourcing my sense of all rightness from myself uh, than from what's going on out there because out there in the world, things are not all all right. You know, it's the, the again, doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, so when I'm sourcing it from, from my own sense of well-being, from my relationship with my higher power and the, the steady, constant, unconditional nature of that love, things get, things get calmer. Uh, so I, I feel calmer as I walk through the world today. Would you mind defining sobriety in in your addiction? So I know what it looks like for for drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. and I want you to maybe talk a little bit about that. But then I really want to know if you have a definition of sobriety and codependency. Um, you know, I don't. I've I've done work around the twelve steps in codependence. I don't know that my sponsor and I ever created bottom lines. Um, but if I were to do that, what they what would they look like? My being sober in codependency in my codependency would mean that to the best of my ability, uh, I am not dependent on the, the, the views and reactions of others in order to know that I am okay, in order to know that I am a worthy, lovable person. I think that would be just off the top of my head would be my definition of sobriety in, in codependency. Sounds pretty close to mine. Yeah, and I would I would make that you know uh, I the, to the best of my ability is an important part of that Absolutely. equation because man we are you know I, we may not be hardwired for codependency but we are we are it is ingrained in us from the womb you know from from the cradle so it is a particularly difficult behavior pattern and belief system to uproot. So I give myself some slack about that. Every once in a while, I, you know, I'm going to find myself in a codependent quandary. Uh, to the best of my ability, I, I attempt to confront those and transcend them. Yeah, a lot of the behaviors in moderation are not harmful. In fact, you know, it, the, the, there are, as I think in, in, in all forms of addiction, there are gold and there are gifts, you know. Uh, for one thing, addicts are resilient. You know, we are resilient, we are willful, you know, we are, there's, there are strengths that when turned to more healthy pursuits can be really positive attributes. 
I think the positive attribute of codependency is we are sensitive people. We are empathetic. We are sensitive to the, to the, to the feelings and the needs of others. And those are good things. You know, those are not bad things. But, you know, when we turn them against ourselves, when we turn them to, this, to, to, to defining our sense of whether we're okay or not, that's a problem. But when we use them to be uh, to get outside of ourselves and be and be sensitive to the needs of others and to care for others as much as we care for ourselves, that's a very positive thing. Sure, but we also have to be mindful of whether or not we're using our codependence to manipulate right on, man. other people. Right? Absolutely, that's the other side of it. Yep, right. We can use that to control other people to get that validation back that we are worthy. Yep, yep. You're right, and that and that 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 would be a bottom line behavior, you know, yeah. for me. So I'm curious, are you, uh, I, I, I know that you work a lot of programs or you have in the past. Are your family members aware of you being in recovery? Are your friends aware? Are you active in your life as a man in recovery, as, as you say? Yes. Uh, certainly all of my family members know because I've, ma- I've done an eighth and ninth step with all of them. You know, I've, I've made amends to all of my, all of my family members. And in the course of that process, you know, I, I had to tell them, you know, this is why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I'm in recovery. They also saw me. They saw my life implode on a couple of occasions. You know, my bottom in alcoholism and my bottom in, in sex and love addiction, they, they knew about it. So it was a little difficult to hide. You know, I mean, I could have said, oh, it was just, you know, it was, that was an unfortunate thing, but I'm better now. And, but I, I chose not to do that. Um, and I am, uh, I mean, for one thing, many of the members, not my entire friendship circle, but I just rough ballpark figure, 75% of my friends are all friends, are all people in recovery. They're people I know through my 12-step work. So, yeah. So, there's no, you know, clearly no no need or, or, or desire to hide there. Um, in the friendships that I have out in the world, um, I am absolutely candid about my about my, my addiction and my recovery. I, You know, man, uh, in what I hope is a healthy way, I am proud of my recovery. You know, I'm proud of, of the work that I've done. I'm proud of the man that I am today. And that it's a direct, it's because I'm an addict that I, that I was able to do all that work. Right. You know, um, my next booklet, actually, is going to be on the blessings of addiction. You know, it's going to be on, on all of the strengths and all of, the, all of the, 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 the desirable and sterling qualities and results that can come out of, of recovery. That, honestly, people who don't do the work that we do may not necessarily have access to or it's harder for them to. You know, so... So, uh, so I don't, I mean, I don't wear a, I'm a recovering addict t-shirt around, but, but it, whenever it comes up in, in, in the course of a conversation w- with a friend, I'm completely candid and happy to admit it. Uh, because number one, I, 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 I am proud of it. Number two, I want to, I, I would like to do my part to take the stigma of it away. You know, it's, uh, our culture has in a very unfortunate, I think it's getting less. I, I think that, I think the the stigma is beginning to, is beginning to diminish, but it's still out there. You know, there's still, there's still a stigma attached, attached to addiction. I know because my sponsees, you know, I have sponsees that I have to, like, all but kick into the pool to get them to swim, you know. And, it, it, like, especially around the eighth and ninth step. Because, you know, they're, they're still carrying shame around what people think of addicts. People think, you know, people who confess they're addicts. So I would like to do my part to take some of that stigma away. And I think you're doing your part by being a sponsor, showing up into the rooms. And also you have... Uh, the opportunity to write and share your writings mm-hmm. and your thoughts and beliefs with other people. Yep. Can, uh, can you talk about your first booklet? Uh, it's a selfish program. I love it. Can you say more? Sure, sure. It's, um, you know, there's a, it, it, you don't have to be in the rooms, at least of AA. I, I don't know if, if the other programs, if, this, if, if you hear this often, but you don't have to sit in the rooms of AA too long before you hear the phrase, it's a selfish program, you know, and... Uh, and that's that can be off-putting to some people, you know. In our again, in our culture, selfishness has a a, a bad rap. You know, there's a when when you when when you call somebody selfish, you are not giving them a compliment. You know, um, and yet clearly in in the way that it's used in in AA, it's intended to be a, a, a positive, you know, hope and hope inducing thing. So I just got to thinking about well, how is that? Why is that? And how can I help people think about selfishness in a way? That allows them to embrace this concept uh, that that it is a selfish program because it is you know that's a it's a true thing it is a selfish program so so the way I did that in the booklet was by examining the stages of recovery and how during the different stages of recovery our idea of self changes because selfishness basically means you know a focus on self um, and 
I believe that the reason that selfishness has such a bad rap is because so few people understand who they really are, you know, who their self really is. Uh, and once we begin to, the, the deeper and more and more uh, uh, accurate uh, understanding we have of our true selves, the, the more selfishness becomes a wonderful thing and not a, not a thing to be avoided. So initially, you know, in, 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 in early first stage recovery, it's a selfish program because we have to survive in order to, in, we, have to we have to work the steps in order to survive, literally to survive. Uh, and that's a thing I think that almost anybody can understand. You know, we all, people understand survival instinct, you know, that we will do whatever we need to do in order to stay alive. And that's, that's, that's true in early stage recovery. You know, you have to do all those things. You have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. You have to get a sponsor. You have to work your steps. You have to do all that stuff in order to live. Uh, and that's, that's easy to understand. So, so that's how selfishness works initially. Like I am going to stay alive and I'm going to do whatever it takes. Um, then I think what, what, what happens as we, uh, as we work our program of recovery more and as we begin to get a more solid foundation of, of sobriety and, and, and equilibrium in our lives, you know, what we, what we then learn is, well, so what's the, what, are the, what are the next stages of recovery look like? Well, they look like, they look like service work. They look like sponsorship. They look like, you know, doing things that uh, are good for other people as well, you know, th that are good for other people. You know, setting up the chairs in a meeting, making coffee, chairing the meeting, sponsoring, you know, taking your time and your effort and your energy to help somebody else recover. But what we learn, at least what I learned, and, and I've seen other people learn it in recovery, is that's a selfish thing to do because the person who really benefits from all that effort is me. You know, that it helps keep me sober. It, it, it helps me create an environment where there are other people to support me to be sober. You know, it is a selfish thing to do to, to, to give up myself to help other people's recovery. It helps me. So, so that's sort of stage two selfishness. You know, that's like selfishness that doesn't look selfish and yet ultimately benefits me. I end up calling it self-care. You know, and that's a great way to put it. That's that, yeah. What I'm trying to explain to folks what, what the selfishness mm -hmm. in a program really looks like, I, it looks like self-care, right? You're taking care of yourself. Yeah, And yeah. then you have to explain what self-care is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One way or another, you're going to run into a wall of like, huh? Right. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I agree with you. I agree with you that, that uh, yeah, you're talking, we're talking about the same thing. And then, and then for me, there's a, there's a stage three of, 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 of selfishness. Um, that that it's it's not really program related. It's completely my own, you know, cosmo, my view of the cosmos and how things work. But I believe it's true, and I believe that 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 it's available to everyone. And that is the awareness that that the longer we sit in the rooms, the more that we do this work, the more that we realize really we're not we're not all that different, you know. In, in, and this can be this can be I think especially poignant and especially impactful in in s recovery because you know we sit in these rooms and the spectrum of behavior that got us there is pretty wide man it goes all the way from you know from pornography from sitting in a room by yourself you know looking at a computer screen for five hours at a time all the way to child molestation prostitution you know the abuse of prostitutes you know, I mean, severe and 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 very very harmful and and shameful behaviors. Life so, so yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's this whole spectrum of behavior, which makes it easier for the people sitting in the rooms to go, oh, "I'm not like him. Oh, I didn't do that. I'm not like her. Well, thank God, I'm not that bad." You know, and and it's and we, we you know we we emphasize the differences rather than the rather than the similarities. And 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 in fact, the longer that with that that we sit in the rooms, the more we realize. Forget the behaviors. Underneath the behaviors, we are all the same. We're all looking for the same thing. We've all found a, you know, we all thought we had found a similar solution. Uh, we all want the same thing, and the way to get what we want is the same for all of us. You know, and and from that place, in my mind, where that leads me is, it's all, we're all just one big self. You know, we are, we really are just one one giant expression of God's love, you know, all looking for the same thing, all headed in the same direction. Uh, and that, that's, that to me is ultimately who our self is. Uh, so that's, you know, that's off into woo-woo land, but 
that's me. Yeah, but it's a <laughs> lot of healing that happens. Oh, brother, right? so much. And so I am going to go into your next booklet, which goes right into that healing process, I think, by doing the steps eight and nine, mm-hmm. right? Can you talk to us about your process for creating the newest booklet? Sure, sure. Um, so um, steps eight and nine, the amend steps, uh, are, I think, among the most difficult steps in the recovery process. And uh, again, in my 25, 26 years in, in recovery, they the steps eight and nine are the steps where I have seen most recovery programs go off the rails. Uh, because it is hard, it is so very hard to confront somebody who, who towards whom we have behaved shamefully, towards whom we have behaved damagingly and with, with sometimes with ill intent, not even, sometimes not with ill intent, but with bad consequences. And to tell those people what the way that I treated you, what I did was wrong, and I will do whatever I can to make it up to you. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's really, really difficult. And, uh, and yet it is necessary. There's a reason why it's in the steps. You know? There's a reason why, in order to fully heal from the, from the ravages of our addiction, it is something that we need to do. So um, uh, I've done a lot of eighth and ninth step work. My own, uh, my own eighth and ninth step in S recovery was about a three-year process. You know, I, I, it went on for a long time. Uh, and I have walked a number of sponsees through, through the eighth and ninth step and listened to people share about it in meetings. So uh, I, I think I have some things to offer uh, on the process. And I wrote that booklet primarily as a how-to guide for the amends process. Uh, like literally from the first from the first thing you need to do to the last thing you need to do in order to get through your amends process with your heart intact and your mind intact and uh, and your recovery in your recovery enhanced. So um, so that's that's about about two thirds of it is a, is is literally like do this then do this then do this then do this and I've got some uh, I have like a sample letter for people to use to like set up their amends process to ask somebody to offer amends I have a worksheet uh, that people can use to, for each of their amends processes to kind of help them set up okay how do I think about this what should I be looking at what you know how should I think about it um, I have a sponsee who's using it seriously yeah who's that's using great. it and it's phenomenal yeah I mean just ah, watching yeah, him uh, grow emotionally yeah through this process has been great since he learned about, you know, how you go through steps eight and nine. Cool, man. So, so thank you for that. Oh, man, you're, you're so welcome. And that's what makes me very happy because that's the reason that's the reason I wrote it. And I mean, I want that. That's the thing is that I wanted to give people my experience, strength and hope. And, and I wanted to, to give them the idea. I can do this. It, this is doable. Because we gotta move, we gotta move our sponsees off of this. I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, know of course right. you can do it. Yes. You can do it. Um, and it's so important, DJ. God, this this step this step was so critical for me and so critical for my recovery. And as I as I say in the booklet, the at the completion of my eighth and ninth, it wasn't even at the completion. At some point during this process of going to people and offering my amends to them, I I realized, and it wasn't just an intellectual realization, I felt it in my heart and in my bones, I realized that I was not the same person who did the things that I was offering amends for. That I, I was able to see with such clarity how much I had changed, how much I had grown from the time that I had started recovery until the time that I got to the eighth and ninth step. And that's such a gift, man. It's so, it's so huge. It's, it's hard, you know, for us going through our own recovery process day to day to day, it's sometimes hard for us to see how we're progressing, you know, how we're growing because it's happening, you know, sometimes so infinitesimally. Uh, but in the eighth and ninth step process, I believe that we are given an opportunity to really claim the truth that we are not the person who did the things we're now offering those amends for. And that's huge. You and I once had a conversation about the gifts of addiction. Mm. Can you share what that means for you? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a firm believer in in the fact that that addiction is a blessing. That addiction is a pathway to God. That 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 it offers us an opportunity that is not offered to everybody on the planet. You know, um, I mean, it is offered to everybody on the planet, but 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 in some ways. It's it's made more clear to us how to get how to how to find that pathway and how to get to it. 
So I think, I think the, the gifts of addiction are, 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 present themselves in many ways. I think the primary way, the most impactful way that addiction is a gift is that addiction brings into stark focus, stark contrast, the necessity of living a spiritually based life. You know, it is possible if one does not have to uh, uh, create and grow a relationship with God, it is possible to walk through an entire life without seeing the need to do it, you know? And, and, and that's sad, you know, it's, it's too bad. But, the, but there are people, you know, I was a church-going boy for, you know, the first 18 years of my life, and I watched people who went to church every Sunday who didn't get it, you know, because, because their life didn't depend on it. You know, they had, their, their life seemed to be working perfectly fine. You know, they had a roof, they had a car, they had food, you know, their kids were in school, whatever, you know, whatever the story was. But the gift that we get in addiction is that we see clearly beyond a shadow of a doubt that if we are going to live whole complete lives, if we are going to reclaim the joy and the happiness and the freedom that is our right, we need to get right with God. You know, we need to create a relationship with God to open our hearts to the existence of a higher power and what that higher power, not only what that higher power has to offer us, but what that higher power is asking of us. You know, and it's a two-way street, you know. Uh, so, so, so that to me is the primary gift is just that clarity of how much we as, you know, spirits in evolution need to create a relationship and sustain a relationship with God and do what's ever necessary to do that. I think, it's, uh, um, one of the other gifts, uh, one of the other gifts is the awareness that we not, we are not alone. And not only are we not alone, but we need other people. You know, nobody in this program recovers by themselves. Nobody. And that awareness that, that we need that help from outside, but, but even more importantly, the awareness that it is out there and it is available to us, that there are people who care about us enough to give up their time, to give up their energy, to, 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 to invest in, in us is a huge gift. And again, you can walk through your whole life and never be aware of that. You can walk through your whole life stuck in the story that it's all up to me, that you know I'm on my own, nobody else cares about me. I know people all around who do that. And that's, again, that is sad to me, you know, that nobody, that people can, can live an entire life without being aware of the gifts that are out there from the people around them. Um, and 12-step and offers that in abundance. You know, it's like every, every meeting we go to, every sponsorship meeting we sit down to, you know, every sponsorship call we make or every recovery call we make or receive, you know, it's just enforcing that message that, that, that we're not alone and that there are people who want the best for us. Um, I think another gift of, uh, of addiction is, uh, is uh, a sense of discipline, you know. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a hard message to hear, and you know, sometimes I have to repeat it over and over to my sponsees. <laughs> but, but the the only way, the only way to do this, and the only way, honestly, to create a life worth living, recovery aside, just the only way to create any kind of life that's worth living is to learn how to discipline oneself. Uh, and the process of recovery, the process of working the steps, is a process of discipline. It's a process of creating a routine. It's a process of making commitments and keeping them. It's a process of doing the hard work, you know, when our, even when our brain or our body might be telling us, no, not now, not today, I just want to go to sleep, I just want to watch TV, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's, it's, it's summoning that discipline that says, no, this is what I need to do. And it doesn't matter whether I want to do it right now or not, I need to do it. Uh, and, um, and, and that is part of a, uh, a, a well-constructed and well-lived life, is that ability to, to engage in that, in that discipline. Um, so that's 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 three big ones. I probably could go on more. In fact, I'm, I will. I'm sure. <laughs> that's for the next book. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Stephen. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? Oh, let's see. You know, I, 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 what's coming to me? What's coming to me? The message that's coming to me is um, is the message that you are worth it. You know, that you are worth the 
the struggle this is going to take, that you're worth the pain and the, and the discomfort that this is going to take, that you're worth the time this is going to take. And if you don't believe that right now, just keep going to meetings. Just keep coming back and let us love you until you learn how to love yourself. Amazing. And I would add, you're worth the joy you will receive. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Stephen. You're welcome, DJ. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at djburr1022 and thedjburr on Instagram. Thank you for listening to this episode of Making an Addict. For all my listeners, I have a special gift for you. I created a seven steps guide to power up your recovery and you can access it today. Go to bit.ly slash seven steps guide. That's bit.ly slash the number seven steps with an S guide. Go ahead and go there now and get your free guide. Sign up for the newsletter and it will be sent to you in your email. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's show featured music by CDK.